Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he tells the whole crowd, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, be willing to die, lose yourself, and follow me, and you'll find life. But this is a very hard message for them. And so they need some sort of a promise like this. This promise then points forward and says, look, the kingdom of God, what you've been waiting for, is coming. And some of you here, looking at the crowd, will actually not taste death before you see it. And then 9-2, you go forward six days. This is Mark's first time ever putting a time stamp on the on the days where he's uh, the ministry of Jesus, after six days, after six days, after what? After this conversation. And so what the transfiguration is, is meant to be a foretaste of this, the coming kingdom of God. This is the display of the kingdom of God. It's the preview of what's to come. And three of the disciples who were in that crowd, some of you standing here will actually see it or see a preview of it. And so nine to Uh, is actually our passage for today then. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there, Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And we'll pause uh, there so we kind of catch the scene here. First off, as the reader, when Jesus takes his disciples up a high mountain, that that should put us on high alert. Because high mountains are where God reveals himself in a unique, significant way. Perhaps you've heard the idiom that sometimes we'll use. Uh, It was a mountaintop experience. right? We use that idiom. A mountaintop experience is to explain something that was exhilarating, where a time when we felt like we transcended normal life, it was, it was something exciting. It was a mountaintop experience. Well, that comes from the many times uh, in the scriptures that God meets with his people or one of his servants on a mountain and reveals himself in a very unique way. So you think of Moses. The first time God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush is on a mountain. Or when God gives his law to his people through Moses, it happens up on a mountain. Or when you have the power encounter between Elisha and the false prophet, prophets, it happens up on Mount Carmel. Or when you think of Elijah when he's on the run and he meets with God, God comes to him in a still small voice, it's on a mountain. And so as you read this, you think, ooh, going up on a mountain, perhaps something significant will happen here. And indeed, we see this idea of the transfiguration, that means to be changed. Something about the appearance of Jesus is transfigured. It's changed. It's different. And in particular, uh, we have this description of the clothes becoming radiant and intensely white, such that no one on earth could bleach them. Now, those are key descriptions because throughout the scripture, uh, God is always described or often described as light. You can even think of 1 John. God is light. Or the psalmist talks about God wraps himself with light as with a garment. Or you think of when God reveals himself on Mount Sinai, you see lightning. Or when God goes before his people in the wilderness, there's the pillar of fire. It's the light. God describes himself as light. Uh, Also, when God reveals himself, you you get a lot of white. This, This idea of being unblemished, clean, pure. And so you think of Daniel 7, when the Ancient of Days 
is there and the, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to be handed a kingdom. The Ancient of Days is described as his clothing is, is white like snow and his hair is like wool. And you think of Revelation when this, the, uh, the Son uh, appears to John. He's got white on. Or in Revelation 19 when he goes to defeat Satan, he's riding on a white, do- uh, not white donkey, uh, a white horse, right? A little bit bigger. But it's this idea of this, this white, these descriptions then are meant to conjure up in our image. This is the revelation of God. The Son of God is showing his divinity. This is God in the flesh. And the way that Mark piles on this description, if you look at verse 3 again, it's, it's like he's grasping for some sort of a way to describe this. Uh, his clothes became, though they were... They were radiant. Uh, well, they were, in, they were intensely white. Such that you, you take something to the cleaners, no matter the best person, they, they, they wouldn't be able to get it cleaner than this. It's just like this beaming, bright light. It's sort of like, you know, if you go on vacation and you take, snap some pictures and you come home and you want to show family. This happened especially years ago, uh, you know, decades ago when uh, you'd go on vacation with your disposable camera. You had to take the film in to Walgreens, right, and wait a couple weeks or a week. You come back, you open up the, the package, you got 14 pictures in there, and only two are even, like, you can even see what's going on. And oftentimes, you know, you go to the Grand Canyon, and you stand at the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been there, and you, you just feel it in your body, the vastness of it. It's just this emotional experience to see with your eyes this gaping hole. It's beautiful. And then you look at a picture that you took, and it's like, I don't even want to show this to people. This looks nothing like that. You're not going to experience what I experienced when I looked at it. This is, I think this is like Mark's best way he could describe it as Peter himself or one of the, uh, Peter, James, or John is describing. This is the, the best they can do. Our human language cannot give you the full experience. So it's just grabbing this language of brightness, white. This is, this is the way God displays himself, unveiled right before their eyes. But it gets even more interesting in verse 4. There then appears to them Elijah with Moses. Of course, they lived on earth hundreds of years before this. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because the dude didn't know what he was to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now there, there's a lot of ink spilled on why Elijah and Moses. Regardless of the, some of the exact reasons, Mark doesn't unpack that. Uh, there's, there's good consensus I think most people would agree Elijah and Moses are prominent figures of the Old Testament, very honored, respected. Uh, Moses, of course, is, is historically called the fountain, uh, fountainhead of the prophets. He's the one that, that God, res- God rescued his people out of Egypt through and then gave God's people God's law. Right? So he's the fountainhead. All other prophets after Moses point back to the law that Moses wrote. 
right? They're, they're the enforcers. They're like police officers saying, hey, remember what Moses wrote, and if you disobey, this is what's going to happen. That's what the, the role of the prophets. Now, Moses, in Deuteronomy, though, he also told the people that one day, God is going to raise up a prophet like me, and it's to him you shall listen, is Deuteronomy 18. One from among you. Most likely that has the idea, one that will come and rescue God's people and will present the law the way I have. And it's to that prophet that you shall listen. Now, throughout the ages then, the Israelites were looking for this prophet. That's why when John the Baptist appears, they, ask, they actually ask John, if you remember this, they say, are you the prophet? So they're not, they're not asking, are you a prophet? That much is clear. The question is, are you the prophet promised by Moses? So a Moses figure here is very key, especially based on what the, uh, God the Father says, uh, which we'll get to. But then Elijah, uh, Elijah, as you may remember, never died. God caught him up into heaven uh, from uh, the chariots of God. Uh, he was a, a powerful prophet. He wasn't a writing prophet, but he, he proclaimed righteousness and repentance, and he was hated. The king of Israel, uh, King Ahab at the time, uh, hated uh, Elijah, and even more so, his wife Jezebel hated uh, Elijah and sought to kill Elijah. And so Elijah was constantly on the run. Uh, now, at the end of the Old Testament, the very last line, Elijah gets mentioned. And the promise of Malachi chapter 4 is that God is going to send Elijah. Elijah is going to come, and he's going to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, children, the hearts of the children's uh, to, their, to their father, lest God come and strike the land with destruction. And so having these two guys show up is very significant for the disciples because they're waiting for the promise of that Moses promised, the prophet like Moses, and they're waiting for Elijah to show up to bring in the kingdom of God. And so when they see that, and the unveiling of Jesus, I mean, something amazing is happening here. And the way I've thought about this is what they would have experienced. You've ever seen these flash mob experiences where people are sort of in the, they're in the mall or somewhere? And, you know, I sh it would have been cool if I would have set this up today to do a flash mob here. <laughs> but, you're, you know, you're eating in the food court or whatever, and all of a sudden somebody who you just... Just before, you just saw them sitting there. They were just looking normal. And there's one where the lady's talking on the cell phone. She just stands up, still pretending to be on the cell phone, and starts bursting out, Alleluia, the Alleluia, with a real high voice, and it's powerful. And then a guy stands up from the other side of the room, and Alleluia, real loud. And it's just this, and then everybody, after one after another, one guy dressed up as a custodian. And he's like, so all these people look totally normal a minute ago. Now you're looking around, and this powerful voice is coming. It's a moving experience for people. And what happens usually at the end of the song, I mean, the crowd erupts. They're, they're excited, and you can, you can hear it in their, in their applause. Just do it again. Stay here. Let's not leave. This was amazing because it's this enclosed place and the power of the voice. And sure enough, that's exactly what Peter does. He sees, this is Unbelievable. All that talk about the suffering? No, no, no. Right here. This is the kingdom of God. We don't got to go anywhere. I, I, I would love to hear Peter tell this story uh, and especially get to this point. I, I would guess that he'd probably laugh at himself. 
this point as he describes, as he tries to find language to describe what he saw in Jesus and, and the power of Christ, the, the divine son standing right before him, and then Elijah and Moses. And then, <laughs> oh man, you wouldn't believe what I said. I mean, what was I supposed to say? I don't know. I, I was so terrified when I saw the power of Jesus right there. You know what I told them? I said, hey, maybe you guys could have some tents, you know? <laughs> you want us to make some tents for you? I mean, talk about a foolish thing to say. I'll make one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah and Moses. I didn't know what to say. But at least we could keep it here. We don't got to go down from the mountain. We'll enjoy this. The kingdom of God has come. And in response to Peter's comment here, then God the Father comes. The cloud engulfs them, envelops them. Now, cloud, just like light, a cloud is, is the presence of God. So you think of when God gave the law on Mount Sinai to Moses, the cloud comes and comes over the mountain. Or the tabernacle. It's a cloud by day, a fire by night that represents the presence of God. Or the temple, when after Solomon built the temple, dedicated the temple, remember what happened? A cloud rushes into the temple so much so that the priests can't stay in there. They have to flee because of the presence of God has come with power. Or Psalm 104 talks about God riding the clouds. The clouds are his chariot. And so the cloud coming is the, is the presence of God coming, God the Father coming, and then the voice We've heard the voice one other time in the book earlier, very similar, at the baptism, this is my son. Same, same phrase. And remember that we talked about this back then, the son is meant to give this image of kingship. Because this is coming out of Psalm 2, in Second uh, Samuel 7, that David would have a son, and God would have an anointed one who would be the king. And the king would crush the other nations who do not worship and bow down to him. And he would rule over the nations and reign forever. So the son language is, is, this is God saying, this is my king. This is the one who will rule over all nations. Listen to him. This is coming right out of Deuteronomy 18. This is the one you've been waiting for. And in particular, listen here has, in the context, listen to the message of the suffering. Because this is the part they don't get. This is the part that, that they have a hard time about, is the suffering of the Son of Man. And so all of a sudden then, after this, the kind of glory of God has been displayed. The voice has come. I mean, you, I, I bet they could feel this in their bones. And all of a sudden, whoosh, it's all gone. There's Jesus, just as normal as could be again. The carpenter. Early 30s. Doesn't look anything different than the rest of the people around. And then Jesus says, All right, guys, let's go back down. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you're like, Don't, don't you want to talk about this a little bit? I mean, you know what just happened, right? And then as they're going, he says, Oh, hey, by the way, don't, uh, don't tell anybody about that. Until the Son of Man rises from the dead. <laughs> Are you crazy? Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them. So this is the, the strong charge to tell no one. 
what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, if you remember from last week, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for him throughout the Gospels, Son of Man is the victorious Son. This is from Daniel 7. Uh, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days hands him over a kingdom where he shall rule over all the nations for an everlasting kingdom. This is the victorious Son of Man that they've been waiting for. And here, uh, Jesus then reminds them that the Son of Man has to rise from the dead. And in order to rise from the dead means you had to be dead. And they, they can't put this together. And that's exactly why they say, you know, they, they kept the matter to themselves, verse 10. And questioning, what are they questioning? They're not questioning the authority of Jesus. They're not questioning the character of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. That, that they have. What they're questioning is what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, how, how can the Son of Man be victorious if he dies? Because remember, the Son of Man, in their mind, meant coming and destroying all earthly powers that oppress them. And Jesus says, no, in our previ previous scene, no, the Son of Man does come with authority, but it's not by crushing earthly powers, it's by submitting to them and laying down his life and being mistreated by them to bring a greater salvation. And they don't get it. Verse 11, they ask him, well, why do the, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus says to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This is Jesus' way of saying, well, you're right that far. That, that's true. Elijah does, does come. That's this Malachi 4. He comes and he, he restores. He proclaims uh, a message of repentance. That is true. You're just not reading all the passages. You, you're, you're only reading selected ones. There's, there's these other scenes I could point you to. Like what about the one where the, the servant of Yahweh, the anointed one, must be despised and rejected by men? He must be crushed for our iniquities. What about, what about that passage? Or what, what about the passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did, did you, do you remember that one? This, you have to take both of these. The, the Son of Man is not only victorious, he is also despised and he will be rejected, just as it is written. That's where the argument goes as he goes on in verse uh, 12 here. And how is it written? that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Verse 13, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So notice how both times Jesus is pointing back. What else is written? It's written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer. It's written of Elijah, he should suffer. Now what's interesting about the Elijah one is nowhere is it written about Elijah's suffering. Uh, in the Malachi passage at all. Uh, but what is written uh, is that, or the Elijah figure, what you have to know is uh, it's not like Elijah's going to be raised from the dead and he is, himself is coming. It's an Elijah-like figure. In the same way that the prophets oftentimes say, David is going to come. Well, David's not going to come. It's the son of David, or one like David, the greater David. So this Elijah figure is one like Elijah, which means Elijah sets the pattern. Or when you think of type, type it's called typology. Like one uh, is a picture of a greater one to come. And so Elijah, his life, his proclamation of repentance that had some response, also had a lot of rejection. And he was sought after to be killed. 
He's a picture of the other Elijah to come, who will come as a forerunner before uh, God's visitation, and he also will be mistreated. It's written about him there, too. And so Jesus here is just trying to simply clarify what what does it mean for the, the day of the Lord to come, the eschaton, what is it going to look like? Yes, God is going to come and bring victory, but it's going to look different than they think when the Son of Man comes. And what they need to know is if, if this doesn't happen, you have no gospel. The centerpiece of the gospel is not Jesus being powerful. The centerpiece of the gospel is the cross. Victory comes through the suffering. And so he's trying to help them throughout this whole section. If you diminish the message of the suffering, then you lose the salvation that you long for. This is necessary. And they just don't get it still. Now, if you ask, what is the purpose of this whole scene here? What's the purpose of this transfiguration? Why is Jesus doing this? I think, well, a couple reasons here. One, they need to know that the suffering that's coming does not diminish the glory of Christ. Christ is glorious. He is God in the flesh. And the fact that he suffers does not diminish that whatsoever. But second... The fact that Christ suffers is not something, something out of left field. This is not like plan B. It's not like now God has to come up with a new plan. This is the very plan. The Son of God came to suffer and die and be despised and be rejected so that he would win victory. And in so doing, in displaying his power and the fact that this is right along the plan of God, this is meant to then motivate and empower the disciples to endure faithfully on the pilgrimage. And so why do we need this passage as God's people? It's because we ourselves need a clear picture of who Jesus is. We need to see his authority and the message of the cross so that we will endure. We need the true Jesus. You know, you can buy, like it's called the dashboard Jesus. I think somebody wrote a song about it. And it's this little figurine thing. And you put it on the dashboard and it's a little bobblehead. Right? You can buy these things for a couple of bucks. Somehow it makes you feel safe. He kind of drives around with you. But that's all it is. It's just this little figurine. Now, that we might think that's silly. Somebody would do that as if that would keep us safe or something like that. But sometimes we, we shrink Jesus down so simple where we're not simply like feeling what, what Peter and James and John felt. This, he's glorious and he's powerful faithful, eternal. This is the Son of God, the one who promises to be your good shepherd believer and is getting a clear picture of Jesus that will actually help loosen the grip off the world. And that's where I struggle. That's why I need this. I need to know who Jesus is so I'm not more satisfied in the things of the earth than I am with him. Because I'm on my way to the eternal city and all who are in Christ, that's where we're headed. This is not home. We don't want this to be heaven. We want that place to be where we're headed. There was actually recently a race uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia, the Peachtree Road Race, and uh, the record holder, uh, the the reigning champion, uh, was at it again, and she was out in front uh, running a great race, and she got within 150 meters, so just under 500 feet. And on the film, you can actually see the, the finish line. But what happened is she's running along and she's 
distracted by the motorcycle in front of her, the, the pace-setting motorcycle. And so she's really, she's watching the motorcycle as she's running. She's not looking at the finish line right in front of her. And the, the motorcycle, a block before the finish line, peers off to go down the street, you know, to get out of the way. And she's just watching the motorcycle, not looking at the finish line. And she runs right off the, right, right off the race, and she loses. Because she's distracted by what's right in front of her versus where she's headed. And the, the person behind her, you watch her too. She, she starts going and then she, she quickly looks at the finish line. She, she goes and wins the race because she's got her eyes on the prize. And as followers of Jesus, as soon as we just get so locked into what's in front of us, even though it's good, these are precious gifts, family, resources, these are wonderful gifts, but they cannot distract us from what we're, where we're truly headed. We're Christ, risen, reigning, and returning, where we will be with God forever. We've got to keep our eyes on the finish line so this does not become what we ultimately long for. And on the other side of the coin, we need Christ as he really is because there is a lot of pain in this world, and you are going to experience more and more of it as you continue to grow older. Whether it be just your physical body deteriorating, people sinning against you, you sinning against other people, and we have to see, no, Christ reigns. Yes, I was criticized, but Christ is reigning. Yes, that person doesn't like me, but Christ is reigning, and Christ adores me. Yes, I've been rejected, but Christ reigns, and he's glorious. Yes, I'm being mistreated, but I'm on my way to the eternal city, where all wrongs will be made right one day. We have to see it. Now, one of the things that I don't know if you feel this, but I read a text like this sometimes, and I feel like, well, yes, I would be able to do that if I had the experience that Peter had. Like, if I could see him physically with my eyes, I wouldn't struggle either. Well, first of all, that might not be true. I mean, you think of the people of Israel. They, they saw the power of God right before them. They sure didn't come out with flying colors real well, right? But I also think of, uh, as Jesus talks to Thomas, remember Thomas says, he's, I'm not going to believe until I, I see him and touches the, the holes in his wrist. And Jesus, Jesus says to Thomas, you, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe who do not see. Or Peter in his letter, first letter, he actually says, uh, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and receive as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So if I, were to, if I were to have a conversation with Peter, this is what I think he would say, and I'm going to go right to his second letter. This is Peter now, an old man, writing this letter. Peter never forgot this experience. As he's penning his final letter for the New Testament, he points back to this scene. This is what he says. For we did, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about Jesus' is coming. This is not a myth. His majesty is coming. But we were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus. For we received honor, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him. 
then I like how he says, if we were with him on that holy mountain. So here first he points back to the scene, that holy place. We were with him. And then he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So what he's saying here is, like, look, look, I did have the experience. I actually have, Peter has authority, uh, his apostolic authority, because he did have the experience. We can listen to Peter. He was one there. He heard the voice. He saw the glory of Christ revealed before him. And he says, yeah, but guess what? You have the prophetic word. That experience that Peter had, he says, actually makes this more confirmed. That experience confirmed this. And Peter says, pay attention to this. Because in this, you see him with the eyes of your heart. And look at it until he says, the, the, it's like a light shining in a dark place. You know a dark place, it's, you can't see anything. As soon as light comes in, whoo, I can see. Or he says, or the morning star rises in your heart. This is most likely this is the prof, the, from prophetic language. The morning star being Christ himself rises up until noonday, so shining light into your soul. Peter says, look, yes, you didn't have that experience, but you have this. God's prophetic word, and that will give you a surer foundation. Look there, believer, he says, or like the Apostle Paul uh, talks about that the, the, the unbeliever, uh, when they hear Moses read, they have a veil covering their face. They can't, they can't see Christ. But, he says, by the power of the Spirit in Christ, that veil is taken away so that when the scriptures are read, you see him. And then he says, and beholding the glory of God, we are transfigured, or trans, it's, he's a transformed, but it's the same word, transfigured. We're transfigured from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold God in the scriptures, we ourselves too are changed and transformed, motivated and empowered for faithful endurance. So I think Peter, his application would be very simple. You don't need this experience. You do need to see Christ, because the more you see Christ, the more you'll be able to endure. But you see him in his word. And that will light up your soul. I want to close here with the, uh, the song, actually, we're going to sing as we do Lord's Supper. Uh, it's, it's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's written by a woman named Helen uh, Lemel. She uh, grew up and was very talented uh, musically. And uh, when she was younger, she went to Germany, actually, to receive uh, intense music lessons. So she was there for four years. And as she was in Germany, she met her husband and got married and then moved back to the States. Now, after she moved back to the States, newly married, uh, doing a lot of ministry with music, uh, she got ill, and her illness uh, caused her to become blind. Now, her husband, newly married, uh, did not want to care for a blind wife, so he left her. Now, Helen is younger. She's in great despair. She's now blind, and she's been rejected by her own husband. She was in great despair. Somehow she got a hold of a pamphlet uh, from Lilius Trotter, who was a missionary, Algerian missionary, uh, who left a very lucrative career. And she could have made a lot of money, but she left it all to go proclaim the gospel in a foreign uh, world. And she talks about the setting your sights on Christ and how the rest of the world sort of just falls into rightful place. Both the pains of the world and the pleasures of the world, they, they fall into rightful place when you have your eyes set rightly on who Jesus is. And that's where this song then comes from, where it starts out, Oh, soul, uh, 
Are you weary? Are you troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Written by a blind woman. With the eyes of your heart, look into his face. See his glory. And all of the pains and the pleasures of the world will take their rightful place. This is our task, brothers and sisters. As a people, this is what we are to do for one another. At home, individually, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in his word. This is what we're supposed to do when we gather as a people, collectively, whole people, on Sunday morning. This is what we do as we gather over coffee. This is what we gather when we celebrate something, when we, when we encounter each other because of the pains of life. This is what we need to do for one another. Help one another see with the eyes of our heart the glory of the Son 